When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. Thinking of the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, it is hard to think of him without imagining him in very particular contexts. One will likely imagine him in a Parisian cafe, working through a pack of cigarettes and some coffee, working on his latest play on a cocktail napkin while waiting for his friend Pierre to arrive. His theories of freedom against the temptations of bad faith are thought to be theories of writers and activists, resistors of occupation. But while this is no doubt a central part of his thinking, it misses another context he was very much interested in, the clinic. While he was not an orthodox Freudian or trained analyst, he was deeply interested in many of the questions that psychoanalysts are also interested in, and this intersection proved to be very productive, generating thousands of pages of lesser-known works. This is what Mary Edwards, philosophy lecturer at Cardiff University, has written about in her new book, Sartre's Existential Psychoanalysis, Knowing Others. Working through Sartre's output from beginning to end, it first sets the stage with his early claims about the nature of the self and the possibility of knowing a person. From there, it works to his later output, in particular, his voluminous yet unfinished biography of Gustave Flaubert, where Edwards finds Sartre developing and applying a very particular method of understanding a person while nonetheless maintaining a respect for their free nature. While Sartre never completed his intended project, Edwards finds his attempts suggestive for rethinking life both in and beyond the clinic. Mary Edwards, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I always like to kick things off by having guests introduce themselves to listeners. So could you tell us a bit about who you are and maybe what your work and research tends to focus on? Sure. Yes, I'm a lecturer at Cardiff University in Wales in the UK, and I am philosophy lecturer. I teach mainly philosophy of feminism and French existentialism. And I also do some courses which are rooted in my research, which is on other people and social imaginaries and a bit of psychoanalytical stuff as well. So my research has mainly focused on illuminating the philosophical significance of Sartre's later work, which has been somewhat neglected in the literature, although that situation is being remedied. There's 
bit of a um a resurgence of interest in Sartre's work lately, which I'm glad about. And I also work on phenomenology of social emotions, and I focused on shame, and I focused on the meanings that are often projected onto women's bodies. And I have also uh, published some work on um, kind of exploring psychological oppression and how Beauvoir and Sartre um, can make contributions to that. Yeah, you've got a lot you're working with. Um, kind of speaking of that kind of broad thematic overlap. So with this book, um, existentialism and psychoanalysis share a lot of uh, thematic overlap, and yet the relationship between the two has rarely been uh, perfectly neat or clean cut. In tracing Sartre's complicated relationship with psychoanalysis, what are you hoping for us to learn, uh, not just about Sartre, but about these two fields, as well as for philosophical inquiry more broadly? Okay, great question. I'm going to start with the easy bit, which is what I'd like us to learn about Sartre. Um, Really, primarily what I like us to learn about Sartre is that he continued to develop his philosophy beyond being in nothingness, right? Um, Although being in nothingness is undoubtedly brilliant, Sartre is still working on distinguishing his existentialism from Heidegger's philosophy of being in that work. It's not until the later works, I'm talking post-1952, that Sartre really progresses away from the Heideggerian ways of thinking that don't fit with the radically social core of his existentialism. Now, I say radically social here because rather than commencing from the experience of an individual subject, Sartre comes to understand that individual experience and individual freedom is always already shaped by social forces. So he hints at this understanding in being in nothingness by situating his discussion of the look so early in that work, but he doesn't fully develop it until he starts working on his biographies and the critique of dialectical reason during the 1950s. Sartre's later works I believe, synthesize insights from existentialism, historical materialism, psychoanalysis, and studies of oppression, including Beauvoir's The Second Sex, to offer an incredibly sophisticated understanding of human freedom, which I don't believe has been fully appreciated yet because, as I mentioned previously, his later works have been largely neglected. Now, the second part of your question... What am I hoping for us to learn about existentialism and psychoanalysis? And what are the, the takeaway for philosophical inquiry more broadly? So there's a few things, and I'll try and be succinct. And if you want to ask me more about them, you can. And um, so the first is that it is possible to develop an existential psychoanalytic approach. And this is an approach that rejects the Freudian dynamic conception of the unconscious. Second thing I want us to learn is that such an approach is meaningful all the way down, um, down to the deepest wishes and desires, precisely because it's rooted in an existential ontological meta theory rather than a Freudian biograph. Uh, sorry, 
biological one. And the third thing I'd like us to learn is that Sartre was enabled to enrich his philosophy through developing such an approach. So in particular, I think that by focusing on concrete relationships, struggles and complexes, by examining individual lives in close detail, I think he gleaned new insights on how the structures of oppression work to shape individuals. Yeah, so jumping off that, in the first chapter, you set down a lot of fundamental ideas of Sartre's, in, uh, starting with his early text, The Transcendence of the Ego, where he posits that the self or I are fictions, retroactive impositions produced by consciousness. However, while the constitution of the ego is deceptive, it is also necessary for life to be lived. Could you unpack Sartre's early view here? Yeah, so I think that probably the the best way to do this is through considering the example of what happens when the delusion of the self isn't there. So I'm going to use Sartre's example, which he borrows from the psychologist Pierre Genet. This is of a young bride who suffers from the terror that if she's left in the house alone, she'll call out the window to passers-by like a prostitute. So rather than describing this woman's condition as a kind of paranoid illness, Sartre contends that what this woman suffers from is a vertigo of possibility, a form of existential angst in which she apprehends her monstrous freedom all too clearly. So she is perfectly correct in her apprehension that if she is left in the house alone, there is nothing to stop her from doing precisely what she fears, no external force and no internal one either. So the difference between this woman and those of us who feel more secure in our sense of self, according to Sartre, is the belief that we possess internal qualities or personality traits that have some power over us, right? They have the power to constrain our actions and dispose us to behave in predictable ways. So Jung Bride from this example, had a stronger sense of self as a virtuous wife, for instance, for instance, she wouldn't have, she wouldn't suffer from the terror she does. So there is a sense in which having a sense of self is a healthy delusion, for Sartre, right? It's one that is adaptive for living in society. But Sartre also aims to show us that many self-conceptions that are encouraged by our society perhaps like the one of the virtuous wife, are existentially maladaptive because they can prevent authentic self-development. So they can shield us from angst. They can shield us from this really uncomfortable um, emotion that's unsettling and disturbing and paralyzes us, right? We could do anything, right? Um, this is not a nice thing to feel. So to, to protect ourselves from that, we can think, well, that's that's not like me. This is what I'm likely to do. However, if we have a sort of image of ourselves that's quite rigid, and if it's been imposed upon us by our society, um, then we're going to run into problems because 
we are going to refuse or at least ignore certain options that are available to us that um it that in a way that constrains our fr- freedom and and prevents us from becoming the person that we really want to be to so, sort of be existentially fulfilled to 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 transcend um what society makes of us a few years later in being a nothingness sartre would continue with many of these ideas but add a social aspect in the look in which one discovers oneself as a sort of spectacle for others often in a moment of shame a word he uses in a very particular way could you unpack what he's developing here Yeah, sure. So Sartre uses shame in a technical sense to denote the apprehension of oneself as an object for another subject. So this represents an entirely new structure of consciousness for Sartre, because up until this point in being in nothingness, he's only considered ways in which consciousness can be for for itself. So that's... um, pre-reflective and reflective consciousness. Uh, So just briefly, pre-reflective consciousness is where you're you're just getting on with the task at hand, right? I'm talking to you um, uh, and uh, and I'm focusing on the content of what I'm saying. But then, right, I might shift into reflective consciousness and think, oh, I am talking to Stephen on a recording. So I'm I'm thinking about myself. Um, but in, in, in both of these types of consciousness, um, consciousness is existing for itself, right? It is, it is not, um, it's not in any kind of social relation. It's, it's just getting on with the task. It's either thinking about itself or it's thinking about what it's doing. Um, but then when Satra comes to introduce the idea of shame, it's a structure of consciousness in which consciousness becomes a being for others. So that means consciousness in moments of shame exists as a recognition that I am an object for the other. I am that thing that the other sees me as. Um, And this is kind of a triangular structure of consciousness. Um, So, um, the other is involved in that. So, so when in moments of shame, um, rather than being sort of non-positionally conscious of an object, that's not me. So there's kind of two points in shame. I'm conscious of myself. So it's a kind of self-consciousness, but it's myself as seen by the other. So the other's part of the structure of my consciousness. And Sartre uses the famous example of the jealous lover to illustrate this point. Uh, So he talks about jealous lover in a hotel corridor, peeping through a keyhole um, to see what his lover's doing on the other side. And he's totally, totally transfixed on what's going on on the other side of the door. He's not self-aware at all until he hears footsteps, right? Um, Footsteps, and then he's forced to consider the spectacle he's making on this side of the door. So he, he previously his consciousness was on the other side of the door. What's my, what's happening with my lover? Now it's been shifted. What is going on on this side of the door? I am 
oh horror, oh shame, I'm this kind of peeping Tom figure for the person who potentially sees me. So even though Satra is using shame in this technical sense, it still carries a lot of the connotations that we ordinarily associate with shame. So it it is this uncomfortable self-awareness right it is it is this kind of negative emotion but the the reason satra or at least one factor in why the emotion of shame tends to be a negative emotion is because we have this kind of existential revelation and that revelation is that we can't be what we want to be and because the concrete aspect of our being, right, it's object, objective aspect, if you like, is the being that we are in the world for others. And that's a being that we only have limited control over. And that's, and that's scary, right? Um, I am that thing that the other sees me as, but oh no, they've just caught me in this bad moment when I'm stooping over looking through it a keyhole and you know they don't understand my motives but but that's what I am now I'm sort of damned in their eyes as this person and so that's that's kind of what in a nutshell Sartre is trying to communicate when he discusses shame early on and being in nothingness so it's it's yes negative emotion but it also it's also this unique structure of consciousness and it's a triangular structure of consciousness, and it's also a revelation. Yeah, the first chapter concludes with a rather contentious claim. You write, quote, There is an epistemological difference between my reflections on my own self and my reflections of the self of another person, in Sartre's view. The difference is that the former are less reliable than the latter. The Sartrean subject therefore stands in an epistemically disadvantaged position with regards to their self. We are each better placed to know others than ourselves because we can see uh, others from the outside and we can analyze them objectively from a distance, end quote. Given how central this idea is for the rest of the book, could you unpack how Sartre arrives at this conclusion? Yes. So we've just seen that shame is a revelation for Sartre, right? Um, and against the comforting delusion that we each have a self inside us, which expresses itself through our actions, what shame shows us is that we exist outside ourselves. Hence, our hopes, our intentions, and our potential, all this is nothing if if it's not realized in the world outside of us in Sartre's view. And this is just this is just a fact of the human condition that we often fail to realize these things. We often fail to do the things we hope to do. And this is a major source of distress for us often. And here's a Sartrean example that I think we can all relate to that helps illustrate this, this point about um, why, why we might not, might not know ourselves as well as we think we do. So, and, and it's to do with this sort of uh, emotional 
issue um, or, or this kind of distressing issue. Um, so say I've been insulted and I want to reprimand the offending person. The problem for me is I cannot know in advance whether I'll be able to deliver a sharp reproach to that person or whether I'll just make timid stammerings, right? And and I won't really, you know, um, get my revenge on the person who's offended me. If it turns out to be the latter, then that's a part of my real self that I have to accept. So I'm not the person I imagined I might be. I might have imagined that I, I issued this kind of witty response and, you know, I had my own back on the person who... Uh, offended me and things were great you know so you see often in movies that people have these kind of fantasies and then when it comes to the crunch and here's my opportunity to respond to the person who's offended me uh, I just fail and like these kind of situations might be very painful for the subject to accept and so what Sartre thinks happens in these kind of cases we have to come up with special narrative devices and schemes in order to incorporate these kind of aspects of my real self into my image of my real self. So I might, for example, note that, oh, I was just especially tired and that's why I was unable to give a witty reply at that moment, but the potential to do so is really there. It's inside me. I just haven't realized that potential yet. It's just, but there is something there, right? So here we can see how my idea of myself might be different from the idea others who've witnessed that scene have of me based on that incident. And for Sartre, my idea is the more distorting one. So others' idea of who I am is based on their observations of their actions, whereas mine is based on interpretations of my actions that attempt to align my acts with the image I have of my ideal self. So unlike others, I have to constantly work on myself. I have to live with myself every day. And this gives me a strong motivation to like myself and to to make myself or make make an image of myself that's likable even if that involves distortion in the second chapter you pick up the problem of other minds which you argue that sartre does respond to albeit in an unconventional way that doesn't directly answer the question so much as tries to reframe it could you explain his response to it Yeah, so traditionally, the problem of other minds is framed as epistemological. The problem is that we have no way of knowing that other people are experiencing beings like us. So since I cannot experience another person's experience, other people could be hollow zombies. And And even though philosophers generally reject solipsism, they also tend to accept that the problem of other minds, at least the epistemological problem, is unsolvable in its own terms. So if I start from my own experience, 
in which others appear as sort of objects, right? So, so they're objects in the sense that I don't have a sense of their subjective experience, right? Even even if I see them as as subjects. Um, so, in my from my own perspective, others appear as these kind of objects for me, and I must admit that I have no way of knowing that they're experiencing subjects. In the 20th century, Wittgenstein and his followers attempted to dissolve the problem by rejecting the Cartesian model of mind it presupposes. So they argued that the traditional problem of other minds actually raises a more primary conceptual problem, which is that it doesn't even make sense to ask questions about other minds if the only mind I experience is my own, because then it would be impossible for me to arrive at a concept of mind that I could attribute to others in the first place. So what, how they attempt to sort of dissolve the problem is by swapping the, what we might call, internal theatre model of the mind for a neo-behaviorist one and this enables them to say that we only arrive at a concept of mind that's general and learn what it is to be minded through relating to others Um, or put briefly and it's others who teach us first what it means to be minded and and so while this, this may be true, um, the neo-behaviorist response for me doesn't speak to the concerns about human loneliness that really underpin the epistemological problem. It's still the case that I can go out in, into the street and wonder if those people are really experiencing, if they, if they have experiences or whether they're just, they're just kind of automatic. I can still wonder about you know I still don't feel satisfied if I'm worrying about that by thinking oh well I've learned about what mind is through other people so I think that Sartre does a better job of speaking to these concerns about human loneliness while also avoiding the conceptual problem so Sartre believes that thinkers like Hegel, Husserl and Heidegger move in the right direction by thinking about human relationships in ontological terms, so in terms of being rather than knowledge. But he thinks that they ultimately still fall into the trap of positing that our most fundamental connection with others is via knowledge. So by focusing on the phenomenological structure of shame that I've just discussed, Sartre wants to show us that our most fundamental connection with others is through being. So through their being, an essential intermediary between me as an experienced subject and myself, so this is self used in that specifically Sartrean way, right, myself being that object that I am for others, in shame consciousness, the other is there in my experience. They're kind of built in to my experience, hence no conceptual problem. I I already always have a sense of the other as subject, and I even have to have that sense of the other as a subject who sees me to have a concept of my own self. And so no conceptual problem. And this speaks to the problem of human, human loneliness, 
insofar as it still acknowledges there's this ontological separation between me and the other because the thing that torments me in shame is that I can't know what they see when they see me and the other I I can have no knowledge of the thing that I am for them so for me I think that this is another more positive revelation that Sartre finds in shame so while it shows me that I can't know how I appear to the other it shows me that I'm a being that exists on the that exists on the outside, like my existence, what counts about me, what really matters is on the outside in the world that's for others. But this also means that the same is true for others. So everything that can be known about another is at least potentially an object of my knowledge. And so even though it says, yeah, it can't, can't answer the problem, the epistemological problem of other minds in its own terms. It says, look, the epistemological problem is misleadingly giving us a problem about knowledge. Sartre is saying there's no problem about knowledge of others because ev- there's nothing there's nothing mysterious about others. Everything that's potentially that we could know about another. We, we could we can find out if we do the work. And um, the problem about others is an ontological problem. And, and that's a problem of being like, we can't experience their experience because we have to exist as our own experience. Um, so, so, so that's how Sartre says, so he says there's two problems about others that get merged into one into the traditional problem. But here's a kind of salve or a balm for human loneliness is like yes you can never be with another person right in this ontological deep sense you can never share in their experience but you can if you put the work in you can know everything that really matters about them yeah so jumping off of that and turning to psychoanalysis you look at the possibility of mixing satra's theories with psychoanalysis um, which would appear to be difficult since satra posits that there is no object behind consciousness that the i or ego is this retroactive imposition which would seem to press against the freudian idea that there must be uh, an unconscious However, this misses the point you raise of Sartre's actual critique of Freud, opening up the possibility that the two can be fused, although you conclude the chapter by noting the proper method is still absent. So before attending to the question of method, could you speak to the difficulty and possibility of fusing existentialism and psychoanalysis? Yeah, so at first glance, existential psychoanalysis seems like an impossible chimera, right? Um, precisely because um, the, the the very idea of fusing together one discipline that completely rejects the notion that there is anything in consciousness that's driving its action with a therapeutic method that aims to cure precisely through revealing unconscious wishes in conscious driving its action and it seems to be just obvious that that this this enterprise of fusion is is not going to work however when you examine the commitments of 
Sartre's existentialism, even his early existentialism as outlined in Being in Nothingness, what you see is that the opposition between these two disciplines are more apparent than real. So like Freud's concept of the unconscious, Sartre's concept of bad faith can explain maladaptive, self-sabotaging, seemingly irrational forms of behavior. Unlike Freud, though, Sartre does not trace these behaviors to an irrational source outside consciousness, but to one kind of that's rational in its own way. So that one that's a choice that we can ultimately understand and it's, it's not outside consciousness, but it, I don't want to say in consciousness, but it's it's part of consciousness. It, it's a very, the, the, the origin of this behavior um, is consciousness, not, not anything other than it. So I like using Sartre's example of the stutterer for explaining how psychoanalysis and existentialism can be fused. So what Sartre argues is an advantage over his existentialism, over Freud's meta-theory, is that it can explain both the stutterer's stutter and his choice to seek help from a psychoanalyst in order to cure that stutter. So, and it can explain both of these behaviours as choices. So, The stutter, in a straightforward way, according to Sartre, realises the choice to be inferior to others. But while the choice to go to a psychoanalyst to cure that stutter seems to express a contradictory choice not to be inferior to others, Sartre believes that if if we push hard enough, we can reveal their unity or the harmony at a deeper level and within a sort of a project the same project underpins them and it's a it's an inferiority project rather perhaps rather than a a inferiority complex so um what happens or like he's Sartre's so he's not like looking at any particular stutter but, but he's giving us an example so he says like what might come up if if we subject this subject to an existential psychoanalysis? Uh, an existential analysis is that this subject um, is going to a psychoanalyst not to seek a cure, not to have his stutter cured, but actually to confirm that his stutter is incurable, and hence that his in inferiority he is just an immutable fact of his his life and his experience that he can't change right so it's just another manifestation of the same in inferiority project and this also has the, the sort of neat result that it will explain the resistance encountered in psychotherapy this kind of resistance to cure So even though this example puts things in an overly simplistic manner, 
I think it highlights both Sartre's attraction to psychoanalysis and his ambitions for it. So he recognizes it as a method for understanding kinds of behavior that defy ordinary interpretation. But he also believes that it's potential to make all behavior comprehensible in terms of choices cannot be realized as long as it's tied to Freud's original meta theory, which um, instead of giving us reasons for behavior or motives for behavior, gives us causes in in an irrational unconscious that's just outside of consciousness that you know that imposes desires on consciousness yeah so jumping off of that and turning to the question of method which is one of the main themes throughout the rest of the book you spend some time reframing dialectics so in sartre's view the dialectic is not an abstract method but the living logic of history. And as he writes in his later work, The Critique of Dialectical Reason, quote, it must be recognized where it is to be seen instead of being dreamed of in areas where we cannot yet grasp it, end quote. Could you unpack this rethinking of dialectics and its implications for what philosophers are doing? Yeah, sure. So I guess when we think of the dialectic in philosophy, what might first come to mind is the dialectic as a philosophical method that's been used in the philosophical tradition since Socrates, Plato. And that method involves arguing for a proposition, then arguing for its contrary, in order to arrive at a synthesis that kind of preserves the insights of both these arguments. But Sartre's dialectic is more in keeping with this Hegelian dialectic insofar as it's descriptive and phenomenological, but it's not completely removed from the traditional dialectic because what it aims to do is comprehend human history by synthesizing the contradictions apparent in it. So this means that if we just return to Sartre's treatment of the stutterer, his treatment of the stutterer in being in nothingness resembles a dialectic, right? Because what we have is a choice and a contradictory choice and then Sartre synthesizes them and says, look, right, both these are both manifestations of and a deeper inferiority project. But it's not, this isn't a dialectical analysis in the later sense that Sartre uses the term dialectic, this Hegelian sense, insofar as it doesn't take into account the the Sutterer's history, including his developmental history, right? That's that's what you need to understand. Something is, is you can't take, um, you can't have this kind of, synthetic uh understanding you have to have um a a a dialectical and sorry that's not the word i'm looking for you need to have um an understanding that under that approaches the state of affairs now as a result of a movement through time 
So um, I talk about the difference between analytic objects and dialectical objects in the book. Um, And Sartre thinks that histories and people, so again, Sartre's kind of talking about people as objects, but he thinks that they're dialectical objects, which doesn't kind of objectify people in this like degrading sense that we might ordinarily think of when we talk of, of, you know, treating people as objects. Um, And so maybe to help illuminate this idea, I think it's worth exploring um, Sartre's kind of critique of positivist or analytical reason. And this is just one type of reason, according to Sartre, but it's the kind that we take as the only kind of reason. And he thinks that is a big mistake. And he gives this example in that he has this really long footnote in the critique of dialectical reason where he gives this example. And I think it's it's really illustrative and it's of um, if you take a picture of a line intersecting a circle um, and he says, look, we, the child, a child can look at this and see that at, if a line, a straight line intersects a circle at any one point, it has to intersect it at another and he says there are, there are many ways in which the child can come to that understanding, you know, that can trace their fingers along the line, they can draw other straight lines along the circle, they can run their fingers around the circle and pop pop their other finger, fingers in the way. Or um, he, he also talks about like thinking of the circle as a movement or as like an enclosing Force and and the line as 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 something that insect that, that's kind of blocked by the circle and, and pierces through. So he thinks of like lots of ways in which we can kind of apprehend this picture. But he says like none of these will will do. Or well, no, more correctly, only one of these ways in which we could apprehend the circle and the line and and grasp the truth that a any line intersecting at one point will always intersect at another. And for, for the mathematician, that's this kind of mathematical way. And in order to arrive at the proof or the, the mathematical truth of the circle, Sartre thinks you have to reduce the circle to just one of its properties. And that's of being radially oriented around a center point and if you do that if you if you grasp the circle just in that way what you can do is you can express the relation of the line to the circle through simultaneous uh, quadratic and linear equations and lo and behold you have the truth that you know any line um intersecting the circle at one point will insect it another as a mathematical proof however he thinks that when we do this look at what what's lost all those intuitive ways of engaging with and seeing with and and these are like and more primary ways of of looking at the picture there are different ways in which we can understand it maybe we can tell a story about it but all these are refused in the move that um wants to subsume the relationship between the circle and the line under analytic or positivist logic. And um, Sartre's 
I mean, he says some quite extreme stuff in the critique of dialectical reason about dialectical reason. And he thinks like it's it's a form of logic that we've just not recognized. Um, yeah, and he says either in the East or the West. And, and we're missing out the most primary way of understanding history because of it. Um, so, but particularly in terms of thinking about psycho analysis what Sartre thinks is that if the analyst approaches the subject or the patient or the client um, analyze and analyze say if the analyst approaches that analyze and as an analytical object as as he thinks traditional Freudian psychoanalysts do then they block themselves off or they cut themselves off to understanding the plur- the full plurality of meanings that the analyzant brings to the analytical situation in advance. So they're not open to comprehending all the meanings that the, the, the analyzant sorry, makes because they've got these preconceived ideas about what makes sense and what doesn't, what's what's rational behavior and what's irrational behavior. What's behavior that makes sense and we don't need to consider and what's the kind of behavior that must be attributed to the unconscious? Because there's no way of making sense of it. Sartre is going to say, no, 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 there is a way of making sense of it. Yeah, jumping right off of that, you show how Sartre develops uh, or starts to develop a new method for understanding both people in history, the progressive regressive method, which tries to take account of the ways in which people are caught between being subject and object, freedom and constraint. A first attempt to apply this method would be in his essay, Saint Genet, where he wrote about his peer and friend, uh, the writer Jean Genet, who himself found the work quite discomforting. Uh, Could you explain the method and this early attempt at application by Sartre? Yeah, so so this the regressive aspect of the progressive regressive method is the aspect that bears the most resemblance to traditional psychoanalysis in that it uses the techniques associated with that discipline to uncover what Sartre views as the subjective significance of biographical facts, so the meaning that they have for the the subject, then the progressive aspect of that method is concerned primarily with gaining an objective understanding of the analyzans socio-material situation and the effects of their actions sort of in, in their world, in their society, through Marxist techniques. Now here, um, objective doesn't mean anything like a God's eye view or a neutral view. What Sartre is trying to get here is another human perspective. And if the subject is an historical subject, as in the case of uh, Flaubert, who is the subject of Sartre's largest biographical study, and the perspective he's aiming for is that which we might reasonably expect one of the subject's contemporaries to have. 
So Sartre documented his application of this method to his peer and friend in Saint-Jeanet, as you observed. And he did it to prove a point, right? He did it, and he's, he's quite explicit about this in the book. He says that, I wanted to prove that freedom alone can account for a person in his totality. So Sartre at the time is engaging with Marxism and kind of these kind of structuralist ideas that it's all about structure. The individual has no power. And he wants to say, as, as you know, an existentialist, no, we... We can't explain everything through social structures alone, that the individual does have a choice in shaping their life. Um, And I think that Sartre may well have succeeded in proving this point. Um, Although this project also, I think, betrays Sartre's naivete at that point in his career about psychoanalysis as a psychotherapeutic and hence psychoactive apparatus right it has this power particularly over the analyzant right so but Sartre had had no formal psychoanalytic training but I think he seems to have arrived at a deeper appreciation of the power of psychoanalysis through observing and witnessing um, Genet's response to the study. So in a later interview, Sartre reports that Genet had experienced such repulsion um, to the book, to the manuscript of Saint-Genet when he read it, that he felt compelled to throw it in the fire. And he thinks he probably did, and and, with a throw a few pages in and then quickly put them out. Um, and what's interesting is that Genet is not reported by the reports. He's not, he didn't feel that way because he felt he was misrepresented in those pages, but rather because he felt as though he was, as he was described in them. So it was uncomfortable. He's recognized himself there, but the problem seems to be that what Sartre did is he gave Genet the kind of insights into the self that should be provided within a confidential, trusting, ther- psychotherapeutic context um, that would also have supplied him with the support that he needed to work through them rather than just, you know, coming across them on his own in, in the a theoretical text, right? Um, so even though Sartre still has theoretical points to prove through the application of his method later in his study of Flaubert, in that study, he chooses a writer from the previous century as his subject. He chooses someone who's dead, someone who's not going to have to experience um reading about themselves in this way um and and that part of me thinks that um there was an ethical motive for doing that um but yeah um in terms of the the earlier application of his method in Genet um I guess 
It's very close. It's very close to what he does with Flaubert. There is an earlier psychoanalytical study that's of Charles Baudelaire, uh, which is which is doesn't ha- contain. It's not rigorous in its application. It doesn't have this objective aspect. Um, I think it's harder for for Sartre to be objective with a peer but then he also had he he also had relationship with Janae so so maybe that was a kind of corrective to some of the um projections he may have imposed on Janae um but I guess even though Saint-Genais is a long book, it's a weighty tome, and when Sartre comes to write The Family Idiot, um, what we see is that it's just much longer, he's he's so much more rigorous, he's just, he goes into so much detail, and then he will circle around the same point over and over, and, and, and I think that what Sartre probably comes to understand by the time he writes his study of Flaubert, and, and this is probably why it's unfinished, is that um, even if it is theoretical, theoretically possible to sort of grasp another human being as a totality, or at least a totalization at, at, to a point in time, and to know everything that matters about them in that very specific way, um, it might just be impossible in practice, right? <laughs> because you've only got one lifetime. Maybe if you had an infinite amount of time to do it, you could. Um, but in the terms of like this being a realistic human project, it might be impossible, even even for Sartre. Yeah, so turning to the Flaubert biography, The Family Idiot, you outline several stages Sartre works through to understand Flaubert's life. So to break it down, we could start with a look at Flaubert's childhood and the way he responded to it with the decision to eventually become a writer. This involves both understanding a situation imposed on the young Flaubert, as well as trying to understand how he internalized it and responded to it. Could you explain how Sartre works through Flaubert's life to understand this decision? Yeah. um, So I think that um, what Sartre does, and I guess I'll I'll just rephrase the way I, I put it in my book, is that I think that Sartre tries to come to this understanding of Flaubert's choice in 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 terms of its con- context and then the potential for his freedom to act in that very restrictive oppressive context. And um, I think he he this isn't the way it's presented in the book, by the way, because of what I said a while ago about circling around the same point again and again and, you know, progressing on through Flaubert's life and then returning to a very important, or what Sartre regards as a very important scene in childhood again and again. But I think that um, we can divide the study into three phases because I think that this helps us capture in the most succinct way, the kind of progression that takes place in the family idiot, even even though it's not linear in that work. But 
the the phases I give are first being understanding Flaubert's being how he was constituted then the second is uh, comprehension comprehension of how he responds to that and then um knowing which involves going going beyond this kind of subjective comprehension so um i'll just expand on that so let's let's think about being so this deals with this phase i think is the phase that's dealing with flaubert's infancy and what satra does in this phase is he pays close attention to the biographies of flaubert's parents as well as reports of Flaubert's infancy scenes from his early childhood that are provided by other family members in order to understand how Flaubert was constituted, right? So this is a really non-existential term, but this is the first time um, Sartre has really looked at how an infant is nursed and and how this might shape the person they become, right, in ways that are clearly beyond the individual's control. So um, after arrived, after he's, so he's born after the eldest son and two dead sons and and before another son who will also die very soon after birth. So from this, Sartre concludes that in all likelihood, little Gustav, as he calls him, was probably nursed with a kind of anxious diligence, right? That the mother would have really not wanted this child to survive, but also without much affection. You can understand how a mother who's just just grieved two sons might treat this this third, or well, fourth son, but... um, with with this kind of distance, a distance because she'd, the fear that, that this child might follow the same path as the previous two. So from this, and and, and it, he he builds a really strong case for this because it, through looking at other letters, and though it might seem like an alarming kind of claim to make, he believes that the way in which Flaubert was nursed gave him a passive constitution. And what he means by this is that Flaubert is disposed to experience himself less as an agent than an object that others act upon. So in the second phase, what Sartre tries to do is to comprehend, so in that sense of understand subjectively, the process of Flaubert's self-formation. And he does this primarily through analysing his juvenilia. Um, And in this phase, he contends that little Gustav could have overcome the passive constitution that he believes his mother gave to him had he had the support of a loving father. But because he interprets uh, little Gustav or Gustav's father would call him Dr. Flaubert um, because he was a medic. He he interprets him as an old-fashioned paterfamilias whose intellectual brilliance enabled him to ascend into the middle class. He believes that Dr. Flaubert experienced 
little Gustav's early difficulties with language as an offence to his pride. And he responded to this by making a brutal intervention into his son's education. And by all accounts, this intervention was effective insofar as little Gustav learned to read and write very soon afterwards, but it came at a very high cost. And this was he basically humiliating his son for the rest of his life. So little like Flaubert, uh, Sartre argues, um, experienced what was haunted by the humiliations he endured at his father's hands at this time for the rest of his life. And this had the effect of a curse upon him. He he refers to it as the paternal curse. And because it prevented him from overcoming his passive constitution, but it also intensified the suffering he caused him. And it did this for numerous reasons. One is that it um, instilled in him this kind of uh, scientific or positivist mindset that his father had that prevented him from... um, becoming religious and he thinks that um, finding faith might have helped Flaubert cope with his passive constitution but he was denied that so in order to live in that kind of situation um, Sartre's Flaubert comes to accept himself as the loser who wins right this is the story he tells himself about himself in order to live with who he is Uh, He believes he's like the loser who wins because he recognises that the imagination is superior to reality. Um, And it's this that ultimately gives him the drive. So first he wants to, he dreams of becoming an actor. And then then he changes, he wants, the second phase is that he wants to become a writer. But when he becomes an adolescent, it becomes clear to him that there's just no way you can pursue his dream of becoming a writer. It's not, he comes from this um, bourgeois family. The father's a renowned medic. Uh, the eldest son is following in the father's footsteps. Uh, the The fate of Flaubert is already decided by the family. He's going to pursue a career in law. Um, but at the age of 14, when he's preparing for a career in law, Um, Flaubert has this nervous attack that renders him incapable of continuing on this path of becoming a lawyer. Now, most of Flaubert's biographers have attributed this attack and the subsequent attacks to epilepsy in spite of its atypical presentation. Sartre, however, argues that Flaubert's illness is hysterical and, unsurprisingly, that it originates in a choice. And it's a choice that Flaubert needed to make in order to go on living in his situation. So because Flaubert is a passively constituted person who's learned to live in the imagination, he can neither disobey his parents nor pursue a career in law. And Sartre builds this really strong case and he comes up with a lot of evidence from Flaubert's work and from his correspondence to suggest that what 
what Flaubert required in order to to go on living was an irreversible transformation that excused him from his duty as a bourgeois boy to take up a profession that his parents accepted. And he does appear to have toyed with the idea of suicide, um, even just in his, his fictions. But Sadra argues that he realises that a social death would do. He could go on living if he became a chronic patient. And so then the study of Flaubert's illness and how it eventually enabled him to become the author, the great author of Madame Bovary, is what completes like the second comprehension phase. And finally, I'll be a bit brief about this one. The third phase, knowing, is the one that applies Marxist tools to understand Flaubert's contribution to history. And it's the, it's the phase that completes this synthesis of regressive and progressive analyses in order to deliver what Sartre believes is knowledge of Flaubert's self, uh, that being the being that Flaubert made himself through, among other things, making himself ill and incapable of becoming a lawyer and writing Madame Bovary. Yeah, so... Expanding outwards from this, Sartre looks at Flaubert's literary work in its historical context. So he finds Flaubert's context to have something of an awkward relationship to literature with conflicting ideas about literature, art, transcendence, class, and morality, all mixing to create what Sartre describes as a sort of neurotic attitude towards literature, a position that held for a time only to collapse with the Second Empire, exposing the hypocrisies of the position and returning Flaubert to his position as the family idiot. Could you explain this contextualist reading Sartre gives here? Yes. So um, Sartre describes Flaubert as a post-romantic writer and this, this group of writers also includes Baudelaire, the Goncourt brothers, and Mallarmé. And he believes that these are all uh, writers who are writing around uh, the middle of the 19th century. And what they, they, they're all um, seeking to transcend their class through choosing art for art's sake um, and what he says is that they, they feel that they have this imperative all of them what unites all of them is that they have this imperative to transcend their class and uh, they must become aristocrats in order to become great writers however they have this awareness that they absolutely cannot transcend their class that they're absolutely not aristocrats so they have these they have this impossible imperative transcend your class so that you might write write great works but uh, this this full awareness that you can't do that so Sartre thinks that this group of writers all have the same kind of neurotic response to this problem and it involves becoming what he calls knights of nothingness in the imaginary. So how they refuse their class is um, 
refusing this um, principle of being useful, of being practical, practical, of taking up a career that has that has this um, makes a real contribution to society and will give you a reliable income. Um, so. And and Sartre, this is where we get to the really interesting idea about Flaubert's relation to his reading public. So Sartre argues that the writings of Flaubert and the other post-romantics were often mistaken by the reading public as realist works. And, and this is because he believes that the reading public shared the same class ideology is them and he, he describes this as this kind of black humanism like a dark humanism um and they wanted to perceive the world as objectively evil so as to relieve themselves from their own guilt and self-hatred so um during the second empire so I'll, no, I won't go on to that. What I, what I should say is that this this leads um, Sartre to this really interesting conclusion. He suggests that because of the way Flaubert internalised his class consciousness, it made him an oracular individual. And what he means by this is that his internalisation of his class ideology, black humanism, led him to a personal crisis, so this is his nervous attack in 1844, that anticipated the crisis of his class at large following the massacres of the lower classes during the June Days uprising of 1848. So what, what, while, so after this point, after this crisis, this is this explains why Flaubert's um, audience misread his work. So he he produced Sartre thinks neurotic art, but it became popular art. So n- usually, like neurotic artwork would have a, a kind of minority appeal. It might appeal to sort of psychologically interested re- readers. But Sartre saying, "Hey, isn't it really interesting that?" Flaubert and the other post-romantics were producing neurotic art that had a broad popular appeal. And he thinks that this is because um, Flaubert and his whole class are neurotic. And what what Flaubert does in his literature um, is that he attempts to give this kind of it's it's kind of like a god's eye view but it's a, it's like as if god was evil and like laughing at his subjects and <laughs> this view appeals Sartre believes to the reading public uh, the reading public of the second empire because they despise themselves and they want to push their guilt onto the world they want to say look the world is just this evil ob- you know it's objectively evil place and um, but Sartre says look he Flaubert doesn't write with a view from nowhere. He has this kind of God's eye view, but it's from a very specific kind of evil God perspective. So this is what makes Flaubert this celebrated author of his time. And this is how he can produce neurotic artwork that has this major appeal. Um, But following the fall of the Second Empire, uh, 
Flaubert and the other post-romantics really had to become realists, like realists in the sense we might ordinary, not literary realists, because they had to reintegrate themselves into the class that they strove to transcend in the imaginary. So they had to recognize that they shared the fears of the rest of their class, fears of occupation, fears of physical violence, that but very bourgeois fear of loss of property. And Sartre finds confirmation of this in Flaubert's sort of um, expressions of like depression and self-discourse and physical sickness and in- inability to write um, after after the occupation of France. And he realizes that his imaginary cover, the cover he'd drawn over himself so that he could live with himself, had been blown. And he discovers that he never stopped being the idiot he learned he was before he could read. In the next chapter, you take on the claim many have made that Sartre's method and his reading of Flaubert do not deliver the objectivity he claims, regardless of how compelling or internally coherent uh, his uh, claims may be. In response, you write, quote, a critique of Madame Bovary would have provided Sartre with a means of confirming the results of his dialectical analysis in the three published volumes of The Family Idiot against something external to the dialectic in them, end quote. Could you explain how the three published volumes provide the foundation for filling in the missing fourth volume and how that would then provide the verification of the first three? What's the overarching method or project supposed to look like had Sartre completed the work? Okay, yeah, sure. So what the the first volumes build up to and touch upon Man and Bovary, but they do not offer a full literary critique of it. That's that's what he intended to do in the fourth volume. And in his notes and his plans, Sartre states that he would He wanted to even apply structuralist methods of criticism to interpret the text. So he he really wanted to let this text speak for for itself. Um, And and what's interesting, and I think it helps understand why we might see a literary critique of Madame Bovary as sort of the test, if you like, of Sartre's method, is because Sartre's study of Flaubert's life runs from 1821 to 1857, right? Says it on the cover. So that's that's not from Flaubert's birth to his death. It's from Flaubert's birth to the publication of Madame Bovary. Um, and this strongly suggests and it kind of almost explicitly states that what what Sartre is doing his project to give us knowledge of Flaubert's self is he's going to give us knowledge of Flaubert the author of Madame Bovary and that's where he stops that's nothing beyond that point but up until that point the being or the self that Flaubert made and because Sartre sees Madame Bovary as, as the pinnacle of Flaubert's self-formation, right? This, this, is, this is the work, this is the masterpiece that made uh, Flaubert, uh, you know, 
a celebrated great great you know the big writer of his time so but also what what you see if you track Flaubert's progress up until that point you see at least at least it such as such as Flaubert what you see is progress from a passively constituted infant to a family idiot who who takes very long time to learn to read and write to a ham actor right that's what he he's acting all the time and joking around with his schoolboy friends and his uh, siblings to a chronic patient then to becoming the celebrated author of Madame Bovary so it's it's the story of the triumph of freedom against all odds and even one that's deeply aware of the structures of power and domination that that shape was all so the if if it had been completed, if Sartre had been able to write the fourth volume, the study of Madame Bovary was going to be objective insofar as it was going to let the ultimate project of Flaubert's self-formation speak for itself as much as possible. Um, so it's, it's just going to be taken alone and, and Sartre is going to approach it from many different angles. And I, I give some kind of specifics about how he's going to do that in, in the book. Um, but another important aspect of that, so you've got this kind of literary criticism that's relatively self-contained. But the reason why Sartre thinks that this kind of literary analysis that's kind of separate to the psychoanalytical project in the previous volumes is going to be the test of his method and because so you've got this kind of more objective analysis that's going to study this objective product but what about the regressive stuff what about the the subjective understanding that Sartre was trying to give us in the in the previous volumes well Sartre thinks that the literary criticism of Madame Bovary is going to give you that too, because Sartre believes that Flaubert couldn't authentically be himself um, in his relations with others. Um, but he, he is able to be himself through the avatars, avatars he creates, so the, his literary characters. And he believes that he... Um, Flaubert arrives at an incredibly rich comprehension of himself through writing his literary works and and he so he Sartre reads Flaubert's characters many of them as avatars for himself and and Emma Bovary is is one of these um so it would have been really interesting to if it, I'm, I'm sad that the fourth volume wasn't published because um, he, there are some hints about how Emma Bovary uh, expresses Flaubert, particularly his sexuality in the earlier volumes, but um, it's not fully developed there. In the sixth chapter, you take up Sartre's claim that the family idiot is uh, the imaginary, his much earlier text, but at 30, that his later work is a mature expression of his earlier ideas on imagination. Could you unpack the continuity as well as the changes uh, in its more mature form? Yeah, so the imaginary 
is a phenomenological study of the role of the imagination in human experience. It's scholarly, rigorous, and it's broad in its scope. So it looks closely at the relationship between perception and imagination, but it also considers the role of the imagination in emotions, creative work, dreams, mental illness, and human misery. So there's a lot going on. It's a really comprehensive study of the imagination in in, in life, but it, it, it's it's scholarly, it's theoretical, and um, there are of course examples. And Sartre um, looks at the work of uh, psychiatrists and, and treatments, particularly of um, schizophrenic patients, in there um, for for sort of real life examples to support his work. But it's a kind of straightforward academic theoretic. theoretical philosophical text right but what I think happens as Sartre progresses as a philosopher is that he finds the way that the richness of human experience is reduced and necessarily so through the kinds of generalizations um that take place in philosophical practice he finds these kind of Reductive generalizations, frustrating. And he therefore like gravitates away from traditional philosophical forms of writing towards more concrete studies. So he spends more time and he devotes more pages and more hours to his bi- biographies. And even the critique of dialectical reason published in 1960. It's a, it's a philosophical work, but even that work, it's combining a philosophical thesis with analyses of specific historical moments. So little, there are little concrete analyses in there. Um, well, they're not little, they're quite long. <laughs> Times is a very, another one of Satra's really long works. Um, but I think the, the family idiot is really the, the culmination of this movement away from the traditional philosophical text. Insofar as it does, it's definitely trying to do philosophy. And I think it is trying to show us that we can know everything there is to know about another person up to a point in time, right? We can know everything about the self that they've made themselves in the world up into, you know, across over a finite period of time. Um, so he wants to do philosophy through the, a rigorous study of a universal singular, right? So there's a, you know, you've got universal, it's, it's the human experience, it's everything we all understand, but it's a singular instance of that experience. What we're studying is a product of both, to borrow Beauvoir's term, the force of circumstance and freedom, uh, so, so to go back to the imaginary. So, why? What's this connection between the the, the straightforward philosophical work that that this um, that the, the study of Flaubert is the sort of second uh, installation of? I have a quote from you. Told me you wanted to ask me about this. I have a quote from the imaginary. I can summarize it, or do you want me to read it? I think it's yeah. I think it's helpful. So in the imaginary, Sartre says that individuals will have to be arranged into two great categories according to whether they prefer to lead an imaginary life or a real life. 
but we must understand what a preference for the imaginary signifies. It is not at all just a case of preferring one sort of object to another. It must not believed, sorry, it must not be believed, for example, that the schizophrenic and morbid dreamers in general try to substitute a brighter and more seductive aerial content for the real content of their life, and that they may seek to forget the aerial character of their images by reacting to them as if they were objects currently and really present. To prefer the imaginary is not only to prefer a richness, a beauty, a luxury as imaged to the present mediocrity despite their aerial character, it is also to adopt imaginary feelings and conduct because of their imaginary character. One does not only choose this or that image, one chooses the imaginary state with all that it brings with it. One not only flees the content of the real, poverty, disappointed love, business failure, and so on, one flees the very form of the real, its character of presence, the type of reaction it demands of us, the subordination of our conduct to the object, the inexhaustibility of perceptions, their independence, the very way that our feelings have of developing. Right, so I think that quote captures a lot about what Sartre thinks is the role of the imaginary in, in our life, and as well as like the danger of the imaginary. So in in the imagination, he theorizes the imagination and perception as, as mutually exclusive modes of consciousness. You can't perceive and imagine at at the same time. And that what that gives you is the opportunity to escape from reality in the imagination. And of course we all do that. But Sartre thinks that humanity, we can divide humanity into two kinds. People that choose to live in the real world and that people who choose choose to live an imaginary life, choose to escape. Um, and it, what's really interesting when he studies uh, Flaubert and also Genet is, and also in the critique he says some things about women, um, people who are oppressed in reality are more inclined to want to live imaginary lives. Obviously, right? You want to escape if you have a bad life, if you don't have many choices in reality, you're going to want to flee into the imaginary. So, but he thinks the problem is, you know, when we think, oh, that this person lives an imaginary life, you know, that they're... <laughs> so there's the choice to live an imaginary life, he thinks, is not just a choice to to have, um, you know, sort of substitutes for real pleasures or real victories. He thinks that if you choose to live an imaginary life, you're choosing to live an impoverished life. It's not, you're, you're, but you're, you're, you're also relieving yourself of the responsibilities that reality imposes on you. So the pro- if you choose to live an imaginary life, you're not going to be able to transcend your current situation. And that's what happens with Flaubert. Flaubert. Even 
even though he became this great, renowned, celebrated author in his time, Flaubert thinks that after the fall of the, uh, sorry, Sartre thinks that after the fall of the Second Empire in 1870, Flaubert became depressed and ill and, and, and wasn't able to carry on writing because he realized he never stopped being the family idiot. This is the story about why, because he'd chosen to escape his situation and not to address his situation in reality, he'd chosen to live an imaginary life. And he he never progressed from being the family idiot, despite writing these great works of literature, which is a really sort of counterintuitive conclusion, right? He became great. He became a great celebrated figure. Why, why does he come to this revelation that he never stopped being the family idiot despite all this? Well, the idea is that he never kind of came to that. He never sort of addressed his relationship. So, so the most powerful individuals in our self-formation, right, are the people we really care about, people we love. And in, in Flaubert's case, it's his immediate family. They always disapproved of what he was doing. And what he did, the work, the great works he produced were sort of a byproduct of him not dealing with that, not grappling with that, not being able to choose against, you know, to 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 disown the sort of the values that he'd inherited from his family to make a conscious choice and an action to do that and become something else. So if he'd like left the family and gone off and become a writer, you would never have had this problem. The problem is, is that he let himself be a failure in the eyes of his family, became, you know, let himself be this chronic patient within the household dream and dream of being something else. But when, when, that he had to accept his class reality. He never, he never gained this superior status. He thought when he came to that point, then um, I guess he also comes to realize through his lived experience. So not just through like so. So in the imaginary, you, you give this. He, we have the theoretical reasons and, and a sort of conception of what the imaginary is that means so it's 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 Sartre describes it as um having this essential poverty when compared to reality what Flaubert does is he lives that essential poverty and he comes to realize it through the sort of devastation he experiences when the second empire falls and the the, the cover that that allowed him to live with himself is just blown to pieces he can't he can't keep that imaginary cover over himself anymore yeah so in the final chapter of the book you have a number of reflections on the implications for this new theory everything you've put on the table uh not just as a new ontology but a new theory of self self-knowledge and therapeutic possibilities in closing, what are the implications of what you've put on the table for healing, growth, and authentic expression, both in and beyond the clinic? Yeah, so um, in the clinic, um, I think Sartre is a big advocate for approaching human action as to use that term I've used previously, meaningful all the way down. So it's, it's meaningful all the way down to some choice. Um, and that means that 
self-knowledge and self-understanding um cannot come from looking for uh, some kind of biological cause um and I think that this has important implications for uh particularly the treatment of schizophrenia so in the book I look at Adi Lang and I consider how Sartre would find much to recommend in the approach Lang takes in his treatment of his schizophrenic patient Julie. But I argue that Sartre's use of dialectical reason could potentially go further in making aspects of what Lang calls Julie's completely psychotic beliefs and expressions of her views comprehensible so Lang dismisses sort of Julie's logic as having no reason and and what Sartre would do would look further to say no that there is a reason there we just have to it's just not you know analytic reason but there is a logic to it and he, he he would go further to discover more and more dimensions of meaning um then I think, again, with an implication for the clinic, I think that Sartre's existentialism provides a robust theoretical basis for integrative psychotherapy. So um, before I went on maternity leave, I was also uh, in weekend training to become a psychotherapist. Um, that's gone on pause for now. But what I learned about psychotherapy or the it, in this current moment is that there's this big movement towards psychotherapeutic integration and there are different pathways you can take. Um, but the, the problem is, is that you want to be ev- evidence-based in your therapeutic practice. You want to treat, you have a duty to treat your patients well, and therefore you have a duty to look at what methods work best are proven to be most effective for the specific condition you want to treat however you have different methods different methods different sort of techniques for different conditions often come from different disciplines or different schools of philosophy that have different theoretical commitments so what do you do with that So, so so what do you want to do if you have um a patient with um, uh, some sort of, um, let's say, sort of, par- uh, not paranoid, a patient with some kind of uh, fear that, like, cognitive behavioural therapy, this kind of exposure therapy works well for us, right? Um, but maybe uh, they also have um, deep issues with their parents so maybe um psychoanalysis would be best for that but then you've got two contradictory sort of meta theories right or or, or at least theory theories that don't fit well together so so one is that what 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 happens is is the here and now and focus on planning on the future and then um, the psychoanalytic so that's the cbt stuff then the psychoanalytic stuff wants to look into the subject's deep history and work through stuff how do you unite those two things and you know how do you justify that um well i think that what satra's existentialism can do because it gives you a 
theory that is it's kind of gives you this it, it tells us that look we're all individual freedoms um in a, in a world that shapes us but it's it gives us this progressive regressive it recommends a, it's a, so I think it's a bit of a misnomer it recommends a method right but it's really not a method in the way that we understand it I think it can it, it's it's incredibly flexible as long as you can justify the method in terms of how the subject sees the world and and what will work for them and what fears they have essentially I think you could use Sartre's existentialism as a sort of um theoretical justification for many different um therapeutic techniques that come from different fields and so that I think is a pretty pretty big point and finally um I cite evidence in the book that to, to suggest that um psychotherapists are generally pessimistic about e-therapy or electronic therapy um but clients tend to be quite optimistic about it. And I suggest that this is partly because what electronic therapy do, does, so in a similar situation, which I'm talking to you in an environment that I have control over, um, rather than, so traditional therapy, I, I would come to the therapist's room and they would have control it kind of redresses the power imbalance between therapist and client and and that's something that Sartre is a big advocate for so he doesn't talk much about sort of applications of his method but he does offer a, a critique of a very traditional psychoanalytic encounter in his essay uh, the man with the tape recorder and um, he he looks at this the a recorded script of really classical um a psychoanalyst's session with his client and he and he critiques it and one of his big points is that you know um the power imbalance the fact that one person isn't sitting face to face with the other person as a subject it, it doesn't create the right kind of situation for um helping another person come to self-knowledge right it, it it it's just going to sort of in sort of such as terms give them sort of all the complexes and exacerbate their 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 um that they're suffering it's not it's not going to help them what what you need is another human perspective and I think in this sort of real life you need to work together so then um beyond the clinic um I think I think it's empowering um but it shows it shows I guess like if you're thinking about how can I use so a lot of books about sort of therapy are about like self-help and I, I don't think that um Sartre's book I, I feel like it does philosophical therapy so I think that it might relieve us of like some aspects of our existential loneliness so it might help us um, you know, if we feel like our loved ones are mysterious to us and we want to give up, then it might encourage us to know them better. But maybe um, 
what it, it tells us is that we really need others to learn about ourselves. So it shows us that like self-analysis is incredibly difficult and you're probably not going to succeed in that on your own. You, you definitely need the help of, you need another human perspective. Um, I also think that um, the, the, the such as existential psychoanalysis and the consideration of its potential applications and, and particularly its, its sort of focus in the family idea on the imagination highlights the need for more investigation into the role of the imagination in the precipitation of psychological illnesses and especially schizophrenia, which recent literature in the field of phenomenological psychiatry has construed as a, a pathology of the self. So I, I think that... Um, and, and and so even though Sartre's work is often cited in that literature, it's usually the earlier work, and it's really the later work, the existential psychoanalytical work, that I think that that has more insights into that. Um, I think it also highlights the role of the family in psychological oppression, which I think is underappreciated. So we tend to look at society, we tend to look at, um, you know intersections between different structures of oppression and how they're experienced but we don't look at like how how these oppressive structures societal oppressive structures are reproduced in the context of the family for understandable reasons but I still think you know you can't look at this it's going to be difficult to do but I think more needs to be said and I think more investigation would be useful into that question the question of the role of the family and um at the very end, I offer a really tentative suggestion, but I think that the inspiration, I think I think there's inspiration that could be drawn from Sartre's approach to reading um, things like like people's bodies um, in, in therapy, but I know that's, we don't want to call them things, but, but objects in the world. Um, like bodies and books as analoga for selves. So what I mean by analoga is like a thing that stands for, but also calls us to imagine uh, an imaginary object. I, I feel like this strategy of reading these things could be extended to any object that a subject uses to make themselves in the world or to make their mark on the world. And I think that... Um, I was reading a lot of like real crime at the time. So maybe this was an, an influence, but what I noticed is that I think what I noticed is that great criminal profilers kind of think like um, uh, an existential psycho analyst would in the sense that um, when they approach the corpus delecti or the body of the crime they don't they don't look for personality types but they look for um evidence about specific goals and 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 especially goals concerning how the perpetrator would like to be regarded as others so like they uh, John Douglas says you know it's not a, an MO that I'm interested in it's it's the signature of of the perpetrator so I, I think that um that existential psychoanalysis perhaps has 
this untapped potential to have very many implications. We can we can read about how individuals express themselves on on any object in the world potentially, and and that can be illuminating. So, but that's my most tentative suggestion. <laughs> Yeah, the book leaves uh, a lot for people to jump off of. So as a final question, I always like to ask, what, if anything, are you working on now? Do you have any new research directions, any new projects you're working on? Yes, yes. So my new project is on existential psychoanalysis and psychological oppression. I want to do a bit more work about understanding how psychological oppression takes place in in the family. I also want to think about existential psychoanalysis as helping to understand um, intersectional forms of oppression. So how how different structures of oppression are experienced by individuals, like how, how exactly those intersections work. So between two different kinds of oppression to create completely unique form of oppression in its own right so maybe existential psychoanalysis um can help us if not remedy these forms of psychological oppression at least understand them a bit better than we we do currently um and i'm also finishing off a paper that um talks about being outside ourselves and about um what what it what it means to have a self that's not inside the self and I also I'm I'm looking at like how we create profiles online and how this is a legitimate part of ourselves and what implications that has for um an existential ethics for uh sociality in, in virtual spaces and online yeah, that sounds fascinating. So in the meantime, Mary Edwards, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great talking to you.